0: Turn with me to Revelation chapter three. Revelation chapter three, beginning in verse one. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I come upon you. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, He who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and know that I have loved you And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel, the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and be with me, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God add his blessing to his own word. This morning we come to the sixth of the seven churches in Revelation, to the church in Philadelphia. You may recall how I said that it's probably a good thing that we've already gone through the Gospel of John and also the prophet Isaiah because those are important to help us to understand Revelation. And I think we'll see some of that in the course of the sermon this morning. Because in here, in Philadelphia, the situation is not immediately and patently obvious. We need to have that background. And even so, we're going to have to think about what is being said here. So let's begin by looking at Revelation 3, 9 and consider what it is that we're being told. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. So what do we know from that? Well, A, we know That, like Smyrna, the source of persecution here for this church was not the Roman Empire. The, The source of that persecution was the Jewish synagogue. B, this synagogue claimed to be the true Jews, people beloved by God and saved by him. But it's clear that they were claiming that the Christians were not beloved by God, therefore not Now, that's why Christ says he's going to have to put this right. He's going to force them to acknowledge that I have loved you. And see, although it's not stated, we can be quite sure, reasonably sure, that this denial is accompanied with the standard treatment given by the synagogues for Christians, which was to cast them out of the synagogue. This began way back in John chapter 9. You remember that with a man born blind His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Now, the idea of excommunication, the idea of discipline, is not wrong. There had to be some means of discipline for those in sin or those who are teaching false things. In the synagogue, and as we'll see, also in the church as well. Churches have doors, doors with keys and someone is given the authority to open and to close those doors. Some people should not be welcome into fellowship for the good and the protection of the flock. Some should not be welcome for their own good, that they might come to repentance for their own eternal spiritual good. The problem was that the synagogue in Philadelphia was not doing it for these reasons at all. Rather, for their own vain glory, they were... And for their own false conception, they were casting these out who were true Christians. They were abusing the power given to them, not to protect the flock, not to bring sinners to repentance, but to cast out those who should not have been. They were saying, in essence, God does not love you Christians. You are not saved. And we're going to close the door on you keep you from the possibility of salvation. And you can imagine that this weak church, it is one that is referred to as one who has but a little strength. You can imagine that in their horizon, it must have seemed to be at the complete mercy of the all-powerful leaders of the Jewish synagogue. But notice how Christ reveals himself. Because you know that this is, first and foremost, the revelation of Jesus Christ to his people. As He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no no one opens. You see, he is true in the sense that he is the real thing. Others may act illegitimately. Others may be usurpers. Others may use the power given to them for bad and not for good, but Jesus is true, he is legitimate, he is the real deal. And he has the master keys, as it were. He's going to use that power. He's going to use that authority to open and to shut, to grant eternal life or to condemn to hell. And no one can undo what he does. He has the key. And that's what this sermon is about. It's the key and the open door. And we'll consider these things in three points. That one, Christ has the key of David. Two, Christ grants an open door. And three, Christ will keep you first, Christ has the key of David. As we read in verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. Now we've mentioned it's important to know Isaiah. We're expected to know God's word and it is important for us to recognize this reference. And it's extremely clear to Isaiah 22. Now the question of course is what what is the key of David. Well we understand that when we open God's word and we compare scripture with scripture. And Revelation has so many references to Isaiah. Many 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 references. And here the place is Isaiah chapter 22. Now I don't know if you remember that far back to the sermon in that chapter but there is regarding the prophecy of Shebna in Eliakim and these were both officials in the church of in the, the, the court of Hezekiah. And at different times, they were both the steward of the house of Hezekiah, the son, the descendant of David. Shebna was an unfaithful steward, whereas Hilkiah was the faithful one. Now, Shebna seemed to have cared much more about his own glory than he did about his master's house. That's why it says in Isaiah 22:15, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go proceed to this steward, De Shebna, who is over the house and said, What have you here? And whom have you here? That you have hewn a sepulcher here, as he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in the rock. He's making a name for himself. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die in your glorious chariots. He cared about these glorious chariots shall be ashamed to your master's house. So I'll drive you out of your office and from your position I'll pull you down. This man had great authority. He was the steward, set over this great house, the royal house of King Hezekiah, but he wasn't using it for good. He wasn't using it for the glory of his master. He was using it for his own glory and misusing his authority. The connection to what's happening here could hardly be any clearer. And you see, in opposition then to to Shebna, this false steward, it goes on to talk about the one who is going to be given that real authority. It says in verse 20, Then it shall come in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. You see? The true shepherd, Hilkiah. Jesus Christ says, I'm that one. The true steward over the house I'm that true steward, and I have the keys of the house of David. Now, how do we interpret that? How do we understand this? Well, what it's saying is that these Jewish leaders in Philadelphia are like Shebna. They have been given the authority, but they're misusing it. And on the other hand, who's playing the part of Hilkiah? Well, it's Christ. Christ is like Hilkiah. Now, yes, we know that Christ is David's greater son, and that is the, the usual thing. We know that all the things in the Old Testament, they're not just, it's not empty. These things point us to Christ in all sorts of ways. And mainly and usually, we speak of that Christ is, is the greater David, David's greater son. But in another way, he is also the great steward, the true steward of the house of David. Now, how can we think of him? How can we think of him as a steward? Well, think about it this way. Notice that Christ never acted on his own behalf. Never sought to aggrandize himself. Never sought to glorify himself. When he was on this earth, he was not, like Shebna, making wonderful, grandiose tombs. When he was on this earth, he did not care about wonderful, grandiose chariots to proclaim his own glory. He was acting for the glory of someone else. His heavenly father. And going back to John. Which verse again I'm sure we are expected to know here. John 7.18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And no unrighteousness is in him. Do you see that? True. He is the one who is true. True. Hard not to see the connection then to this one who reveals himself, he who is holy, he who is true. How is he known to be holy and true? Precisely in that he is not seeking to glorify himself, but he is using his power and authority to glorify his heavenly father. He is the one who is true, the true steward of the house. He's acting on behalf of the father, not seeking his own glory. And that, that continues not just in his time, his brief earthly ministry, but it continues all the way as he's building up his church, not for his own glory, but for his father. Because in the end, he's going to hand it over to his father. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15:24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. He's the great steward of the house, acting on behalf of the Father. So that, I think, is the reference to the key of David. Speaking of Christ's stewardship, the true Hilkiah, the one who ultimately has the keys. Now we should speak a little bit about the power of the keys because we know from other places in Scripture that, that men, human beings, do act on Christ's behalf. That's what is known as the power of the keys. We get that from Scriptures like Matthew sixteen, eighteen to 19 And I say to you that you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And likewise, just a couple chapters later in Matthew says, and if he refuses to hear him, this is the instruction of what to do with a sinning brother. And if you you go to them, you talk to him individually, then you bring someone else. And if he refuses to hear them, this is after it's going to the church. Uh, Now, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to even hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, this is not something for the Pope, but for the duly appointed elders that Christ has given for the governance of his church. And the way the Confession says it, putting these scriptures together, Confession 30 says this, uh, uh, To these officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed by virtue whereof they have power respectively to retain and remit sins, to shut the kingdom against the impenitent, both by the word and censures, and to open it unto penitent sinners by the ministry of the gospel and by absolution from censures, as occasion shall require. So we don't want to interpret these things as saying that God never gives men any element of the power of these keys. Because clearly it is. Because clearly he has said in Matthew 16 and 18 that these things are given to those acting on his behalf. But, but, clearly that power is derivative. Clearly, those who hold the power of the keys, the elders of the church, are not acting on their own behalf. They didn't make these keys, they didn't earn these keys, they didn't buy these keys, they don't own the house to which the keys go, they're just using the keys. Or like uh, the, the one who, uh, well, stewards, for instance. Or, that's a good word, isn't it? If you're a steward, do you have, you have keys? Yes, you do, don't you? You have keys to this place. Well, you don't own it. And in fact, the authority isn't yours entirely. You're acting on behalf of another. And that's exactly the situation of those who have the power of the keys in the church. Because the main point is here that Christ himself is the one who ultimately has The keys. Some may act illegitimately, not for the good of the flock, not in accordance with truth. They're not true because they're acting on their own. And it won't ultimately stand. Why? Because the real authority does not come from them, but from the one who actually has the keys of heaven and hell, the one who actually has the key of the house of David, who opens and no one closes and closes and no one opens. That is the main point here. Christ is the ultimate holder of those keys. Now, What does that that mean? It means, for instance, that heaven is a place that has a key to it. It's not a public place that anyone can walk into. I know that sometimes it's spoken as if that were the case. It's not true. Heaven is going to be shut to some, to many. And likewise with hell. Indeed, we want that place to be shut and barred. We hope someone has got the key and has shut the door and locked it. But that is not the case with many, many people. It will be a wide open door and they will go through it. They will have to go through it. Someone has the keys to hell. We need to remember that. And therefore it is absolutely crucially important. Our relationship to that one who has the keys to heaven and to hell. We want him to open the door to heaven. And we want him to shut the door to hell. Everything depends on that one who has such power. Christ has that power. He has the key. And notice that it is he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. It's pointing to the sovereignty of God. Now, some people don't understand the sovereignty of God, but it's very simple. It's what we mean when we say that Jesus Christ is Lord. It means that he has the power. It means that the power is not in our hands. That you and I don't have ultimately that key, but he does. That he is the sovereign of the universe. He is able to have d- dominion over all things. He has the key to heaven and to hell, and he is in charge of who goes there. And no one can change that. You see, if he's going to open to someone, then none of us can go and shut. And if he's going to shut to someone, no one's going to open, not even themselves. God is in charge. That's what it means when we say the sovereignty of God is that he is in charge of all those things. He has the keys. He opens and no one shuts. Christ has a key. The house of David. And secondly, Christ grants an open door. That's what it says in verse 8. I know your work. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it you have a little strength and have kept my word have not denied my name it's uh, interesting the relationship between those two things again it's not that they've merited it's not that they've earned salvation but the relationship between those two things is that they have this open door because they've kept the word and have not denied my name because of course had they not kept the word had they denied the name of Christ they've removed there is no open door there Those two things, of course, work together. Christ and his word. Christ doesn't operate independently from his word. There are no people who are saved who do not believe in the word of God. Those two things come together. Well, I've sort of already tipped my hat to, or to my my hand, I mean to say, uh, with regard to the interpretation of this. Because it's not immediately and utterly clear what this open door might be, but I think we can figure it out. I think on the supposition that this revelation is for God's church throughout all time, it must have a definite meaning, and therefore that meaning is something that we can know. What does it mean then when he says, I've given to you an open door? Now, most of the time, very many times, it's taken to be an opportunity for gospel proclamation. And you can see why people would think that this open door is about the opportunity for ministry, because it says in places like 1 Corinthians 16:9 that the great and effective door has been opened to me. And in 2 Corinthians 2.12, I came to Torah to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord. So clearly there is an element, there is an idea in which an open door means opportunity for ministry. But I don't think that's the main idea. Maybe that's the secondary idea that we should think about. But the main idea is salvation itself. Because that open door for ministry doesn't mean anything unless it's an open door to salvation ultimately. And I think that this is the meaning for a couple of reasons, mainly because almost every time that Christ promises something to the churches there is only one exception. Almost every time that Christ promises anything to the churches in these letters, it is a metaphor for salvation. As it says in Revelation 2:7, "I will give to eat from the tree of life," or 2:11. they will not be hurt by the second death, or 2:17, I will give them the hidden manna to eat and the white stone." Or Revelation 2.28, the morning star. Or 3.5, clothed in white garments. I will not plot out his name from the book of life. And as we'll see in our passage, in verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem. All those things are types, pictures, metaphors. Or salvation. When he is granting something to these churches, it is all a different way of, I'm going to give you eternal life. I'm going to save you. And so I think this is what the open door means. And that's not such a strange thing, because scripture in many places refers, talks about salvation as if it were a door or a gate. You know the famous words in Luke thirteen twenty-three: The question, Lord, Are there many who are saved? Good question. And he says to him, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you, where you're from. Saving faith is likened to a door. As it is also in Acts 14.27. Now when they had come and gathered the church together. They reported all that God had done to them. And that he would opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. as an open door you see. You have to go into this door. It's all about salvation. That's the open door. And we have to ask then. Okay what, what is this door? What is this way that he set something before him? He set an open door before them. Well, what is that door? Well, that door is Christ himself. Because that's what Christ is giving to us. And again, that's what it says in the Gospel of John. John 10, 7. Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. See, Christ himself is the open door. And do you see the connection maybe to this situation? Remember that this is back in the context in the, the immediate aftermath of the man born blind. And that he had been cast out of the synagogue from those acting illegitimately with those keys for their own glory, not for the good of the flock, but to kill and destroy. They're the thieves, you see, not the legitimate doorkeepers. They're the thieves, and they're coming to steal and to kill the sheep. But Jesus says, no, I'm the door. And if anyone comes through that real door, they will be saved. Christ is the open door. Now, who's going to, to be able to shut this door? If it is indeed Christ, who's going to be able to shut it? If the door were one of us, if the door were me, well, you, someone could shut that. But if the door is Christ, no one can shut him. If he has given himself to you, and remember, it is, if his gift, his initiative, and he says, I have given to you an open door, is his gift and his initiative Who can close it off from us? See, that's really important because the element, the thing that's being emphasized, it is not in the power of man to deny it. It was not in the power of this Jewish synagogue to deny them salvation. They say, you're accursed of God. He says, no, no, no. They're going to find out that, that you are beloved of me. They acted as if they were shutting them out from salvation. But the reality is that no one can shut Christ to those whom he has given himself. They can shut and bar the doors of the meeting place to them, but they cannot take away what Christ has given. And that's what's taught in John 10:27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Not those Jews who hated the man born blind and cast him out in the Gospel of John, and neither of these ones in Philadelphia, neither anyone else. Because Christ Himself is the open door, and it is not in the power of man to shut that door. So Christ has the keys of David. He has given to them an the open door because He's given to them Himself. And thirdly and finally, Christ says that he will keep you. He says in verse 10, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I will keep you from the hour of trial. And once again, we said, you know, that revelation is the, the revelation for the church, for us. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ to his people and it's not something esoteric or or something only for specialists or academics. It's absolutely true. But that doesn't mean that it's always easy. It does require that we know the scripture. It doesn't mean that we apply our minds a little bit to think about these things. And you could think here, you, there could be some confusion. You could think that if I'm going to keep, Christ says I will keep you from the hour of trial which will come from the whole earth, you can understand why so many times that's taken to be That before the significant persecution comes on the earth, believers will be raptured away. But notice, it doesn't say that they will be taken away from it, but rather that I will keep you from it. That's really important because those things aren't exactly the same thing. And it's really important for us because it's a big difference, isn't it? Between knowing that there's a promise that you'll be kept in times of trial and persecution or the promise that those things will never happen to you, that you'll never have any bad circumstances. Can you see the difference between those two things? Well, once again, John, I think, is expecting us to have read his gospel. Christ is expecting us to have read his gospel and he's expecting us maybe to know John 17:14. This is the high priestly prayer. This is Christ praying for his people. He's opening the council of heaven, saying what he is praying to the Father. And we know that everything that he asks of the Father is granted. So this is the future. This is reality for us. This is promise. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Because they're not of the world, and I am not of the world. What's going to happen if the world hates them? It means that the world is going to persecute them. The world is going to misuse them. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. And you know that that word is the exact same word. Not that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. The world is going to hate us. The world is going to persecute us. Bad things in various ways are going to happen to us on this earth. But the promise is that Christ is going to keep us. He's going to keep us from the power of the evil one. He's not going to be able to get us. No one is going to be able to snatch us from his hand. He's going to keep us. He has the power to do it. And he has the will to do it. And it's going to be as he desires. Now it is a reminder that if trials were ultimately something to terrible in the eyes of God, they wouldn't happen to us. Because believe me, Jesus Christ has, he could have prayed that, he could have prayed. I pray that you would take them out of the world before anything bad happens to them. Well, I guess he's already failed, hasn't he? Because between chapter 9 and chapter 10, they've already cast this blind man out of the synagogue. They've already persecuted him with their, their words. And his promise to him must have already failed. No. He was glorified in the man born blind, saying, you can do what you want and you can say what you want. But I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was glorified in that. And so he is glorified in us when we endure persecution for the sake of his name. And that is what Revelation is all about. Being faithful witnesses in the inevitable and real persecution, not only that will come. Because God isn't, no, certainly not because God isn't in control, but because God is in control and he wants this opportunity for us to show ourselves to be pure gold. The promise is, not that we're going to be kept from the bad circumstances, but that Christ in all of them is going to keep us. I will keep you. Now, how do we apply these things? First, very simply, we ought to walk through the door. I mentioned heaven itself has a key. It's not a public place. Some will be kept from it, and others will be given entrance. But the gospel itself is free. It is the free offer of the gospel. It is open to all. Don't don't mix those two things. Heaven has a key. It is shut to some. But the gospel, to all that hear it, may freely come. That's the wonderful thing about the nature of the gospel. It comes. The invitation is given to all. And if you receive it in faith, it is yours. And because Christ has earned heaven, because Christ has those keys, when you put your faith in him, then he opens the door that would otherwise be shut. Now, there's no other way that we can go. There's no other door. He's already said, and it's precisely in the context of this situation, well, both in back in John 9 and 10, but also here in Revelation chapter 3, there are false possibilities. There are false shepherds. There are those who are trying to steal sheep. There are those who are trying to mislead sheep. There are those who are trying to kill us, those who are trying to persecute us. Many false possibilities, but there is a one true door. And you think about that, how he says, not many are going to be saved because there is a broad pathway to destruction. Satan makes that very easy. He doesn't put too many stipulations on. In fact, he'll, he'll decorate the door to hell in all sorts of various wonderful, attractive-looking things. It'll be nice and big, and it won't be too hard to get there, and it'll be attractive. On the other hand, there's this small... Despised door that the world doesn't like at all. But it's the one true door of Jesus Christ. And those who walk through that door are walking straight into heaven. And therefore, I urge you, I exhort you to walk through that door by faith. Children and young people, some of you who have not put your faith in Christ, walk through the door that is open before you. The offer of the gospel is free believe in Christ and be saved. And second, although I said that this may not be the main idea here, it is something, nonetheless, that we're commanded elsewhere, pray for open doors for the gospel. Pray that we'd have opportunities to bring the great door to people. It may not be the primary, but it certainly comes from that. You see, if Christ himself is the door, how is Christ mediated? How is Christ? What are the means by which Christ is given to us? Because Christ isn't here, is he, physically? Christ has ascended. Christ has sat down at the right hand of God, so therefore Christ is not here. He is mediated through things. There are means, the means of grace, primarily the word of God, but also the sacraments and certainly by prayer. And therefore, those means must be made available to people. And if that's the case, then there must be opportunities for that. There must be opportunities. We have to pray for an open door. I mean, it's something as simple as even this meeting place. Praise God that the door is open to us. That The keys have been granted and we can walk in and we can meet this morning. We have the opportunity, therefore, to have access to the real door to Jesus Christ, to the means of grace which can save us and can keep us and can build us up in the faith. We pray for that sort of open door. And then we pray for open doors for further ministry, for inviting people, for telling people about the gospel, for the work of evangelism in this place and in others. We pray for open doors because if God does not grant the open door, it will not happen. That is why we are commanded or rather, I would maybe put put it better, requested, urgently ask in Colossians 4:3 praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains now Christ didn't my uh, Paul didn't mind persecution for the name of Christ he was willing to endure that that wasn't his problem he didn't ask get me out of jail quick i'm sure he did ask for that but that wasn't his main issue that he was praying for he was praying that the door would be open for him to speak the word whether that was in jail or whether it was somewhere else he wanted opportunities and so we pray individually and as a church and as a denomination we pray for open doors for ministry and thirdly and finally we need to hold fast we know that Christ is going to keep us but we have to keep him don't we We saw the connection between those two things. Because you've kept my word, haven't denied my name, therefore you have this open door. Why? Because it is only through Christ. You can't both reject Christ and also have the open door to salvation. You can't be kept by Christ and deny and refuse Christ. We must hold fast to what we have. Verse 11, behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. And what we have, of course, is Christ. He's the one that we have. Hold fast to him. As there's all sorts of other possibilities. There's all sorts of gimmicks I've mentioned in my prayers. To so reminded once again, sadly, that there are many, many threats throughout the world to even very good churches. The winds of change are on the move, are blowing across good denominations. And... The thing is, we're going to be faced sooner or later with the question of whether we're going to turn to other things, turn to things of this world, turn to some sort of false gospel, to some sort of gimmick. And we have to hold fast to what we have, to Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, nothing else. We must hold fast. But we understand and we know that for those who have put their faith in Christ, the promise is that he is going to keep us no matter what. Let's pray. Great God and Heavenly Father, you are enthroned in heaven and you carry out your will on this earth and you build your church. How thankful we are that Christ did not come on his own behalf. He came to glorify the Father. He came to do the will of the Father. And so, Lord, he has won everlasting salvation for all of his people, for all those who put their faith in him. And therefore, he has granted this open door because he is the true and faithful one. Because he is the real steward, the true Hilkiah. Therefore, we have this open door that no one can shut. We pray, Lord God, that many would go through this door that though we understand that the way is not broad, it is narrow, and few are to be that find it, Lord, we pray that these people might find this true way of salvation to Christ Jesus, and that moreover, an open door of opportunity might be granted to us to bring other people into this saving knowledge. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.